Do turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. Today we're recovering from uh, a devastating three weeks. Uh, from the point of view of our house, that is, devastating three weeks. In the last three weeks, we've had two of our grandchildren staying with us, and uh, two of our daughters uh, have been with us, and they've basically taken over the, the house, and, and uh, every time we go up the stairs, the rule is that one of us carries something up from the first floor to the third floor, so it can be put into storage, and this morning I went up with a box of toys, trucks, cars, that little Samuel's been playing with, and... Uh, I have to say that when I took it into the, the baby's room, we have a baby's room in our house. I mean, old people with a baby's room. I mean, goodness. And uh, we live in Hope. Uh, the, it, it was really quite devastating to find, you know, the place so quiet, no child there anymore. And then I thought about the nights we've lost sleep this last few weeks and thought, <laughs> peace, perfect peace with loved ones far away. <clears throat> No, seriously, in life there are these periods that we look forward to. We've been looking forward to our, our girls coming over to see us, measuring our expectation and excitement so that the others who weren't coming to see us didn't get too jealous, although that didn't succeed in at least one case. But, but that's family life for you. We have to kind of balance the amount of excitement we show for the arrival of any particular one so that there is equal excitement for each one as they choose to come and see us. Anyway, having managed the level of excitement relatively well, uh, we were looking forward to it. And now it's been and gone, and we're back to just the two of us again. In life, there are many things we look forward to, and we look forward with expectation and hope. Sometimes our hopes and our expectations are realized, and other times they're not. Sometimes you look forward to something, it comes, it goes... And instead of being the exciting, happy time, well, there's been, you know, family tensions. There weren't this time. But there were family, and by this time I don't, didn't mean to say or suggest that, in fact, there have been other times when there was. <laughs> but you can draw your own conclusions. But there wasn't this time and everything went very well. But, but there are times when it doesn't go well. And you know these things. You know that life is like that. Because our hopes and our expectations are very limited. Really, our hopes are no more than wishful thinking. We hope that things will go well. We hope that everything will be right. Sometimes we use the word, we trust that things will go right. And if we're feeling particularly positive that on a particular day, we might even say, we are confident things will go right. But we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But in the Bible, the word hope is never used in that sense. In the Bible, the word hope, when it's used of the purposes of God, is always something that will happen. It is absolutely sure, sealed, steadfast. It will occur the way that God describes it. And Christian hope is like a rock. It will, it's not going to collapse. It's not going to erode. It's firm. It's substantive. It is eternal. Isaiah, in this opening section that we've been looking at, and this is the end of the opening 
section has given us two great prophecies that kind of act as brackets around a kind of core middle passage. Chapter 2, the opening verses, chapter 4, are the brackets in between. In between, we've been looking at that for the last few weeks, and it's been devastating. It's been like machine gun fire of judgment kind of coming at us from all quarters, exposing the life of God's people, shattering the illusions we have about the church of God, questioning our motivation and our behavior and our practices, and challenging our understanding of leadership in the church, and seeing, as we saw the story of Israel, seeing reflections of our own inadequacies as the people of God today. It wasn't the most positive few sermons, was it? You've come today hoping for better. In fact, somebody said that to me last week as they were at the door. They said, I hope next week is more cheerful. I hope so too. But you see, what has been happening is this. If I can paint this picture for you, what Isaiah is doing is this. The beginning of this section, he gives an amazing picture of the last days. He, He talks about In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the the Lord will rise above all the mountains. It's a picture of God building His final temple, His final dwelling place, His final home for the people of God, for the house of Israel. And He says, that's where we're going. That is our destiny. And the nations will come into it. Nature will be reversed. There they will pour uphill like a river going in the wrong way, uphill to the house, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Great picture of the final days. Then we have this picture we're going to look at this morning. It's very positive. It's very encouraging. But in between, there's this dark, dark picture of the day of the Lord. And as we read that picture, that description of the day of the Lord, that seems very heavy, very solemn, very discouraging. We saw glimpses of actual events that we have seen in history. Well, we haven't seen them, but we can read about them that have already occurred in history. The people listening to Isaiah were well aware of the Assyrian assault on northern Israel devastating. They were well aware of incursions by the Assyrians onto the promised land and the kind of scorched earth policy that that they pursued in the promised land, in Judah itself. There are hints of that in the text. Anyone reading that in Isaiah's day would see. Isaiah is speaking to our day and our time. In fact, he's indicating it's going to get worse. About 100 years after Isaiah, the Babylonians come back. This time they don't only do a scorched earth policy on Judah, but eventually they attack Jerusalem. They demolish the city and the temple. They bring into exile the people, the inhabitants of that that area. And Isaiah is prophesying it here. People living about 800 years after Isaiah who were living in A.D. 70, would see a similar event occurring. Jerusalem and Judah overrun by the Romans. This time the Romans are going to put up with no nonsense from the Jews. They demolish Jerusalem. They annihilate the temple. They scatter the people. And it's the end of temple worship. To this day it's ended. 
It was desperately final. And Isaiah leads us to understand that those days of the Lord are only preparatory to, forerunners of, the day of the Lord at the end of history when He judges not just the church but the wicked. It's a terrible picture. But what Isaiah is doing is something he does again and again in this book. He gives us prophecies in the near future, in the medium-term future, and in the long-term future, so that as we see these prophecies coming true, as the people of his day saw the Assyrians doing what they were going to do, and thought, that's like what Isaiah said. Or later on, the people of the Babylonians' time, seeing what the Babylonians did, saying to themselves, that looks like what Isaiah said would happen. Or the people in AD 70, seeing what the Romans did, saying, that is almost precisely what Isaiah said would happen. That those fulfilled prophecies would make us then take seriously the big blessed promises that bracket that section. In other words, Isaiah is giving us reason to believe. The reason the reasons he gives concern the judgments that occur in the world. And he's saying to us, as these things happen, as you see these things occur in history, know this, that the Lord, your God, will not only keep his threats, he will keep his promises too. You can depend on it. You can build your life on it, he says. Well, one of the things we saw as we were going through the judgment part in chapter 3, for example, in verse 10, is that, that Isaiah talks about a group within the larger nation of Israel. He calls them the remnant. Let Tell the righteous. This is what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Talking to those who are right with God. He's talking to those who are trusting in the promises of God, and who are caught up in the political anarchy, in the military defeat, in all the warfare and famine and disaster that's going to come upon Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel. Believers. Believers who would be asking themselves the question, here we are trusting in the Lord. Here we are taking the Word of God seriously, taking the law of God seriously. And yet here we are caught up in this conflagration like everybody else. Has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? And Isaiah has a word for them. Listen. For those who are right with God and for those who are believing the promises of God, no matter what you're going through at this earthly level at this moment of time, this isn't the end of the story. Behold, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be raised. He says at the beginning, and now he says, in that day, in that day, something amazing is going to happen for you. You have not been forgotten. So here is God's Word. Let me put it like this. Here is God's Word to the believing church, to those within the Christian church, the church of God today, who are believing 
and to our faithful and to hold to the testimony of God's Word. Here is God's Word to you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what part of this world you live in, no matter what is occurring to your church in whatever part of the world you are in, here is God's promise. Just as there are judgments in the world, and God is judging His church in this age for the sake of the world, so His promises will come to pass. Here are His promises. They are promised, first, a righteous leader. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. I feel I ought really to be reading that in the broadest Glasgow accent that I can find, just to show him how to do it. Uh, in that day, the branch of the... I can't even say it, you know, it's laughing. Anyway, forget it. But, but the point is this, so in, in the previous chapters, there has been a total deconstruction de of the weak and unworthy leadership that was taking place, that was afflicting the church of Isaiah's day. As a sign of their disobedience and their backsliding, good leaders had disappeared, and bad leaders were in position. We saw that that's often what happens in the church. When people don't listen to the Word of God, when people are rebellious against the Word of God, what happens is God gives them the kind of leaders they want. We saw that. But now in chapter 4, in that context, Isaiah now promises that there will be a leader to beat all leaders. The branch of the Lord. He uses a word there that comes from a root that we find in the language of King David. In, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we find it. David is uh, giving his last words to Israel. He's reflecting on the promises God has made to him. And here's what he says. Does not my house stand so with God? What, what he's saying is, the future of my house, my family, is absolutely secure because it stands with God. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper or to grow? This is where we get the root from, the root of this word branch. Because all my salvation, all my help, my salvation and my desire are from him. Now what is going on here? David makes this promise. He's absolutely sure that God will not abandon his house, his family. Because God has made a promise that from his family will come one great king in the future, the Messiah. And Isaiah picks up that idea here and he says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Because what they're going to see, what Israel, what Judah is going to see, is not only them lose their land, but lose the monarchy. Kings are going to be put to death, or they're going to be taken to exile, and it will look as if, it will look as if God's promises to David dry up. They disappear. They vanish like the wind. And the word of the Lord comes through Isaiah to the people to say this. Whatever it looks like, 
Whatever it looks like, be sure of this. In the last days, God will be faithful to those words of David and the promise given to David and that everlasting covenant God made with David and the branch of the Lord. An individual. The Targum interpreted this as a reference to the Messiah. An individual. As this idea is taken by the, the later prophets and expanded, for example, by Jeremiah. In the same context, by the way, as Isaiah here. Uh, Isaiah, remember I said the context is bad leadership. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, in the same context of denouncing the false leaders, the false shepherds, the kings and leaders of Israel who had led them astray. In that context, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He will exercise justice and righteousness. Now, here's the connection with Isaiah. Isaiah has just said, the wrong people are reigning and ruling over Jerusalem and Judah. The wrong people, unworthy, unable, even the unwilling, are ruling the people. But in that day, you see, a righteous branch shall reign. And what will he do? Isaiah has just said that there is no justice and no righteousness in the land, but in that day, this leader will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his day, Jeremiah says, Judah will be saved. Instead of obliteration, destruction, as Isaiah has just described, there will be salvation. And it will be secure because, Jeremiah says, Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. This is the name. The Lord, our righteousness. Now this picture then of desolation in verse 1 gives way to this surprising picture of verse 2 when he says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Here is someone who, as it were, can be described in relationship to, to Yahweh. On the one hand, and yet be circumscribed by his connection to the land, that is, to the land of Israel and the other. He has both a divine and a human connection. He comes at the Lord's initiative. He comes in the name of the Lord. Later, prophets put it, use it, this metaphor of the shoot or the branch or the root, and they describe the destruction of the house of David as the destruction of a tree. A tree has been taken down. One of our neighbor's trees recently was taken down right down to the stump. And the prophet said, can you imagine it? Here is the royal house reduced to an embarrassing stump of wood. And yet there'll come a day when from that stump you'll see just a twig emerging from the side. It will look insignificant. You'll despise it. You'll think that's nothing compared to what it was. That is nothing. And yet that twig represents God's purposes for the future will become a tree that will fill the whole earth. A branch, a twig, a shoot will emerge from the house, from the royal house. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. 
Isaiah says, again he says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. The Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 25. The one who comes to deal with sin instantly, Zechariah chapter 3. One who is both a king and a priest, Zechariah chapter 6. In other words, they're promised a righteous leader. And this is, of of course, no other than a promise of our Messiah, Jesus, our righteous leader, the Lord, our righteousness. He is our righteousness in the absolute sense because he is the righteous one, and he is our righteousness because by his obedience and blood, he has applied his righteousness to us, a faithful, a righteous leader. Then secondly, they're promised a fruitful land. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now you notice there's a connection between the branch of the Lord and the fruit of the land. There's a parallelism there. Uh, The effect effect or impact of, of the descriptive part, the branch of the Lord, shall be beautiful and glorious, The fruit of the land, which is connected to the branch of the Lord, that is the Messiah, will have an impact upon the people, on the survivors of Israel, shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now, what is the fruit of the land here referenced to? Well, of course, Eden was a place of great and rich vegetation. Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But because he sinned, he lost the picture, he lost the plot, and he lost the land. Canaan, it was a kind of reproduction of Eden, another Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was God's gift to the Israelites. It fulfilled God's promises to their ancestors, and, and God gave them the land, and he established a relationship with them, a covenant with them. It was a It was a covenant of works. If you obey my word, if you keep my law, then you'll keep the land. But what Isaiah has been doing so far is raising an indictment against Israel and Judah. He's been demonstrating from their behavior that they have consistently, from the very beginning, broken the rules, broken the law of God, broken their word of bond with God. They have broken the covenant. They are covenant Breakers, And although that's been going on for centuries, centuries of disobedience, centuries of idolatry, centuries of law-breaking, now the time for recompense has come. They're going to lose the land. They're going to lose it. The exile to Babylon. They lost the land. They never got the land back. Some of them went back to the land, but they never got the land back. It was always owned by other people. Today, what was their land is uh, some of it's owned by Jews, but others is owned by other people. They've never got the land back, ever. They lost it. They're still in exile. They're still away from the promised land. But here, you see, Isaiah is giving this promise that when, through the branch of the Lord, through the influence of this one, the connection to this one, the land will once again become fruitful and glorious. Later on in Isaiah, we read, in his prophecies of a restored Eden and a return to paradise. Vineyards will be planted and their fruit eaten. Chapter 65. 
abundance of food and drink, chapter 66. The desert will blossom and the wilderness become a fruitful field, chapter 32. Zion will become a crown of beauty. Those who eat its fruit will praise Yahweh, chapter 62. Chapter 27, Israel is portrayed at last as a vineyard of delight, another garden of Eden. God will protect it, and they will be at peace there, and the vineyard will cover the whole earth. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout and fill the face of the earth with fruit. And at last, the, the word to Adam in the garden will be fulfilled, be fruitful and fill the earth. The desolation, in other words, of chapters 2 and 3 prepare us for this new thing that's happening in chapter 4. It's almost like going back to the beginning, to Genesis. You remember in Genesis 1, you have God creating the heavens and the earth and it all being in darkness and without form and void. And then into the darkness, God speaks. And out of darkness, there is light. And out of disorder, there is order. And from mere material things, there is life. So there is light and order and life that is created by the power of God. And out of the disorder and disaster and, and deterioration and sin of chapters 2 and 3, now we see God is doing a new thing. It's a new day. He is going to bring about a new place, a fruitful land. There will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. This raises the question, who are these survivors? It brings us to our third point. Not only a righteous leader and a fruitful land, but a holy people. A holy people. Who are these holy people? In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul discusses the question of Israel, thinking about the Israel as a whole, the 12 tribes, and more specifically, perhaps, Israel, the Jews, Judah, and so on. This is a question raised by Isaiah in the previous two chapters. And Paul asks the question like this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? You look at the history of the last 2,000 years, and you ask yourself, did God reject Israel? Did he reject the Jews? Has he rejected them? And Paul goes on to answer the question like this. By no means, he says. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Therefore, God has not rejected the people he foreknew. What he's saying is this. Here I am. I'm a Jew. I believe in Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, and the Christian good news. Therefore, Israel has not been written out of the story because there are others like me who are faithful, believing, Israelites, who believe in the promise of God in Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. He goes on to give an illustration. Do you not know that what the Scripture says about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel, and he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. Poor me, poor Elijah. He pats himself in the head. God says to Elijah, as Paul quotes it, I have kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the idol Baal. 
And so what God does is establishes a principle there. And Paul points us to that principle. Not everybody who belongs to Israel is Israel. There's Israel, the mass, the, the nation, the people as a whole, and there's Israel, that is, those who actually act like Israelites, who believe God, who trust God, who cast themselves upon God, who are right with God. There is an Israel within Israel. There is a church within the church. There is the professing church at large, and there is the possessing church, those who have eternal life. There is, to quote Paul, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And Paul is rooting that theology of the remnant in passages like this one here in Isaiah chapter 4. Because the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. That word is a word uh, that becomes the, a technical word, the word for a remnant, like a piece of cloth or carpet left over after the rest has been damaged or sold. The remnant are those who are left, the survivors, those that remain, the remnant. And he says, this remnant, this remnant will be called holy. That is, they will be called those who have been ring-fenced, set aside to belong to God. What distinguishes this remnant are two things. First of all, God's choice. Look at what he says about them in verse 3. They will be called holy because, why? They have been recorded for life in Jerusalem. That is, recorded among the living. Or literally, they have been written unto life. They are on the Lord's list they're on the Lord's list. He has their eternal destiny in view. And they find themselves listed for life by God. Did you know God has a list? Do you know who's on that list? Of course you don't. God keeps it to himself. But here's what he does for those who are on that list. He goes on. They get a complete makeover. They get a complete makeover. I've always thought about these makeover shows. I don't know if they have them in America. I haven't noticed. I haven't had time to watch television since I came. For me. You keep me so busy. It's a lie. But they have these makeover shows. And I've always, I've always thought to myself, it would be great to have a makeover. You know, somebody who would, who would take me on, perhaps someone with lots of money, is, be my personal shopper and take me out and, and get me what's in. Uh, I like to go to places like J. Crew. You laughed, you mocked, to see what trendy young people are wearing nowadays and try to wear it myself. I, I would do all of that. I would, you know, I would try. I, I really don't know how I would suit in skinny jeans, but I would have a go. <laughs> And uh, a makeover, I'm sure. My, my kids are always telling me that I need to kind of spend some money on myself. And, uh, I'm, and I try to take them seriously. And then Christine hears about it, and that's the end of that story. <laughs> but here are people. Here are people in this passage. And I want you to notice they have a radical makeover. Everything that was said about them, everything that was said about them in chapters 2 and 3 is unsaid, is reversed. 
There they're unholy, and here they're holy. There they're unclean, here they're clean. There they're stained with blood, here their bloodstains are removed. It's an amazing makeover. And we ask ourselves the question, how can this happen? How can it happen? Notice how it's supposed to happen. It's to be done by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. It has to be, it has to satisfy both God's justice and God's holiness. What does that? How can unjust people stand before the absolute justice of a holy God? How can unrighteous people stand before the absolute righteousness of a righteous God? How can it be done? Without us being consumed by His holiness and His righteousness. The Apostle Paul links many of these ideas together in Ephesians. When he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. You notice it all has to do with the fruit. Which is parallel to the branch. The fruit emerges from the branch. The fruit is related to the branch. The fruit is in the branch. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Even as He chose us. There you have the first step. Listed for life. Chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be what? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine just knowing yourself as you know yourself? Far less what other people say about you. Can you imagine coming before God and being regarded as holy and blameless? It's impossible. Of course it's impossible. So how do I get to be holy and blameless and stand before God? Here's how. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace in which He has blessed us in the Beloved, that is in Jesus. In Him, we have redemption. We're going to see there's a, there's a hint in the verses that follow of, of redemption, of the, of the glory cloud leading the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. In Him, we have redemption. In Him, we're, we're brought out of slavery, brought out of our burden and bondage. Brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood. Through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of His grace. How can there ever be a holy people? Because God will deal with our sin. And holiness becomes our status. So that if you're a believer today, this is how God sees you. You are His holy ones. You are His saints. You stand separate from the world, not because you're better than the world, but because you've been justified. We sang it earlier on in one of Dr. Boyce's hymns. Well, here's the fourth thing. We're promised a glorious destiny. 
then the Lord will create. Same word as Genesis 1. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, smoke, the shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. He will create. God is going to do something brand new. We were right to think that there is a hint of Genesis 1 in what we just saw earlier in the passage. Here it's made absolutely clear there is to be a new creation that will take place. We ask ourselves, at what point in history was there a new creation? Well, at one level, I suppose, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus was a new creation. If you read Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel and John's gospel, you will see in their reference to the incarnation of the Son of God, that He is a new creation. The Spirit of God hovers over the womb of Mary as He hovered over the unformed uh, substance of this planet before He brought life and order into it. And He hovers over the womb of Mary and creates in her womb that holy thing that is the Son of God. It's a new creation. And everybody who is connected to this Jesus is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. God is doing something absolutely radical and new. And it doesn't stop there. Fast forward to the end of the story, and guess what? This newness about this creation not only affects my spirit that is renewed by His Spirit, but it affects this body. This body will be transformed into His glorious resurrection body and this planet, this cosmos, renewed by the power of God. New creation altogether. That's our future destiny. Know what God did in keeping His threats and understand that He's going to keep that promise for you as well. A new creation. Verses 5 and 6. We see what's going to happen in the future over all the assemblies of God's people. The word there assemblies, refers to people who are called out for the purpose of celebrating an assembly together before God. It's a forerunner of our word, ecclesia, to be called out, called together, to assemble before God. It reminds us, by the way, that our worship today is not temple-like worship. We don't worship God the way they did in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. We don't look to the Old Testament form of worship and apply it to ourselves because that form of worship has ended. Temple worship ended when the Holy of Holies, Jesus Himself, in His flesh, was pierced on the cross. At the same time He's on the cross, you remember, the curtain of the temple is torn. It was a symbol of the fact that the Holy of Holies had been torn, the body of Jesus torn, and the inner glory of God had been manifested. We have seen His glory. Now we don't look to the Old Testament to discover how we should worship in our assemblies. We look to the synagogue rather than the temple. We look to the simplicity of the new covenant. One of the problems of the Middle Ages was they tried to recreate Old Testament Worship. They reintroduced a priesthood and so on, which you don't find in the New Testament. But back to our passage. The glory of the Lord will be there. 
The glory of the Lord is his presence. Splendor of God. Just imagine. God has shown up. He's present to be seen and enjoyed. The Bible says a lot about seeing God. Take all the brightest sunshine you've ever, you've ever experienced. All the blazing sunsets and brilliant sunrises. Take all the tallest mountains. The most lush pasture. Take all the beautiful people you've ever seen, all the best of human invention and the latest technologies of artistic achievement. Take all that is beautiful, everything that has caused you to say, oh, or awe, or wow. Everything that has exhilarated you, everything that has ravished your heart with its sheer beauty. Take those things magnify them by eternity. The glory of God is greater than all of those things. It will ravish your soul as nothing ever has the beauty of God and His glory. And it is the destiny, it is the destiny of every man, woman, boy, girl who loves the Lord Jesus to share in this glory in the future. This glory that was represented in the Old Testament by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that led Israel through the wilderness to the promised land, that, that came and rested upon the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle when they built the tabernacle. And when they built an earthly temple that came and rested in the Holy of Holies in the center of Solomon's great temple, that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud that remained with Israel and after the exile is seen in Ezekiel's vision to leave Judah and Jerusalem altogether, never to return. When they went back and they built a temple, they cried because they had the building, but they did not have the glory. And not until the Word became flesh, God put skin on and his disciples saw him and they wrote, We beheld his glory, the glory that led Israel, the glory that hovered over the tabernacle and the temple when he came and he tabernacled amongst us. We beheld his glory. The only glory of the only God, full of grace and truth. Today our holy of holies is not in some building somewhere or behind me in some sacristy. It is in heaven. It is in the presence of God because Jesus has taken his resurrected flesh there. He is our holy of holies. And as you and I gather in worship, we gather with the saints that are already there in that temple in the heavenly places. We gather with them, but we do so as those who are still aliens and strangers here. But here's the assurance over them all, there will be this canopy of glory. You know, the church was able to see it for a short time. On the day of Pentecost, when they were gathered in the upper room, 120 of them, and the Spirit came, and miniature, miniature pillars of fire landed on the heads of each believer in that room as if to say, you are now part of that glorious temple. 
the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rests upon you. You're part of this temple God is building of living stones, not blocks of stone, but living stones. People that is building into this connection to Jesus, who is the final temple. That's where we're going. That's our destiny. Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am and see my glory. The glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's your destiny. is to see the glory of God that will never cease. Never cease. To ravish your heart. You know there are people that do that for us. But nothing in comparison to this. The real fulfillment of Isaiah 4 is ultimately Revelation 21, where the presence of God now replaces any physical temple, where the presence of God provides the light rather than the sun and moon, where by the light of the presence of God the nations walk and they bring into the city all of their wealth, and the gates are left open continually because only the pure enter. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21 speaks of the glory of God as its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Samuel Rutherford said, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That Lamb is the branch in whose days Israel shall dwell securely. Here we are, the people of God, we are a pilgrim people. And then we shall be at last secure in the presence of God forever. Here we come Sunday by Sunday, as it were, to camp out together for an hour or so. As God's assembled people. And then we'll be scattered into our various occupations to serve Him and to serve the world for Him. In business or industry or education or medicine or nursing or whatever it may be. But we gather here, we gather here as our a kind of little camp. We're getting together. And then we disperse. There will come a day. There will come a day when the trumpet will sound. We'll be called to attention. And instead of camping out here for an hour, we will be caught up into the immediate presence of our King. And we shall see God. And every tear will be wiped away. Every doubt will be dissolved. And we'll be home. Home at last. With a refuge and a shelter. And the canopy of God's glory. Covering us all. That's our destiny. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would please take our hearts and secure them for yourself. Think of those words of Robert Murray McShane, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.